Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. Anthony Chisholm has been around politics for most of his working life. He was among the youngest Queensland State Secretaries for the Labor Party, running state election campaigns in 2009, 2012 and 2015. Those last two campaigns were stunning in their outcomes. 2012 was a crushing loss for Labor, yet less than three years later, the party pulled off arguably the greatest upset in Australian electoral history. In 2016, Anthony Chisholm was elected to the Senate in the Federal Parliament. On May 21, he faces re-election for a second term. During Anthony's time in politics, social media use has surged at the expense of traditional media. So how do you engage young voters and older voters who no longer use mainstream media in the same way? In this episode... Senator Anthony Chisholm offers a rare glimpse into how political parties are attempting to connect with voters in this ever-changing world. My name is Michael Crutcher. Welcome to Sourced. <music> Senator Anthony Chisholm, welcome to the Source podcast. It's great to have you here, particularly during the busyness of an election campaign. Now, we also did try to get a member of Liberal National Party to be here, but we understand elections are really busy and so they were unavailable today. But thank you for coming in. And we go back, I think, to around about 2007 when we first met. You were then uh, working on the Kevin Rudd election campaign in 07. I was Chief of Staff of the Courier-Mail's election coverage and then we got to know each other over the years. I'm interested now... Back in those times, you were running campaigns. This time, you're again running for office. What's it like to go from running a campaign to having your name on the ballot paper? It's certainly uh, different forms of pressure, um, being on the ballot paper compared to running the campaign. Uh, I think the, the great thing about being on the Senate ballot paper is that you're a little bit more obscure than what you are uh, if you're running for the House of Reps seat, so you don't feel the acute pressure like, you do in that scenario um, and then as campaign director um, uh, there's not a day where you're not under pressure basically and I think the the pressure comes from the fact that if it goes wrong um, you're the one to blame yeah uh, and uh, I uh, had a lot of experience as campaign director I had uh, some success and some failures but I, uh, I like to focus on the successes more than I do the failures <laughs> And we appreciate you coming in because you've seen so much over those years. I mean, I think we've known each other roughly 15 years, but so much has changed in that time. It feels like it's probably 30 or 40 years of change. But back to that first election you worked on in party office, that was in 2000, a state election, mm. the Peter Beattie landslide. I'm guessing we go way back to 2000 and we're talking with election campaigns and you're doing most of your targeting through old traditional media, newspapers, TV, 
radio, that type of thing. Can you recall back to 2000 and even coming through mm. uh, in the years after that? Yeah, it, it, it's amazing how quickly campaigning can change because I remember back in 2001 uh, we had a website and that was that was huge and exciting and uh, you know I don't know how many people actually would have gone and had a look at it but I remember it was in all the advertising uh, and certainly yeah there would have been a budget for a, a website that would have been um, minor compared to what you would have spent on TV radio uh, and newspaper um, which were the traditional forms in that days also back in in those days direct mail. Yes. was a significant expense that would be spending on campaigns uh, and that was always used particularly late in the campaign because you obviously had that blackout period the last three days just trying to get that message in. Yep. Um, but that blackout period, whilst you just can't advertise on TV, it's basically become redundant because you can do all the digital advertising these days which runs around the blackout period. So I think it just shows you that that electoral law hasn't caught up really with with you know, the new technologies and the new ways of campaigning uh, and no one's really tackled that problem. The blackout period, that sounds like a quaint term. Now yes, you mentioned it, it is, now, yeah. I hadn't thought about it for a long time. Mm. Well, it used to be, it, it, um, I probably shouldn't say this publicly, but in 2001 um, we were on track for obviously a good result and we spent the last, once the blackout period um, came in, um, the ALP office was near the Fox Hotel um, so we actually spent the Thursday, Friday, Saturday at the Fox Hotel. <laughs> but you wouldn't get away with that these days um, from a campaign point of view. But it literally used to be, well, there's nothing more you can do yeah. from a campaign uh, thing. But, yeah, these days you're going right till 6 o'clock on election day because um, you can still have those digital messages flying around um, and it's much more immediate uh, in terms of your political campaigning opportunity these days. So going back to that 2001 period, how did you know if you were going well? I'm guessing you were polling and how expensive was that and how reliable was it? Yeah, we always um, – the, the Queensland Party have, have always been a, a pretty well-run professional outfit um, going through um, secretaries probably back to, to Wayne Swan's days in the, the late 80s when he started. Uh, hopefully Peter Beattie doesn't hear me say that. <laughs> um, but we've always had a good – established system of of using the same providers who we had confidence in who had you know Queensland politics is always a bit unique so I think it pays to have people who have worked on previous elections so they get you know the the geographic challenges the different issues the rise of one nation all those types of things which have been factors here in Queensland for a period of time now um, so we've always valued good research and if you value good research you've got to spend a bit of money on it yep. basically to to because you do um you know what you pay for um you know the quality of it is important um so that's always been a good factor in queensland and often in queensland elections the statewide polls don't tell you the real story of what's happening because you will get different results in different geographic reasons and Hanson and One Nation have been a significant part of that um, the last couple of decades. And then obviously you've got focus groups that just give you a sense of what the mood is in yep. particular um, regions and, and given the, the geographic nature of Queensland, you know, what's happening in Cairns won't be the same as Townsville, sure. you know, Mackay, Rocky, yep. but all those towns are important in an election um, because they've all got seats based on them, they've all got their own media market. Uh, so you need to have your finger on the pulse in all those places and ensure you've got your 
you know, one, you want to be influencing what your leader says when they're going into those places and what issues they're focused on. Yeah. But you also want your campaign advertising to be reflecting on those different issues as well. And it, it would be quite regular that you'd be running different ads in different reason, regions depending on, on what message yep. is working best. How hard was it back in that period before social media, how hard was it to change tack as a campaign went on? If you're picking up stuff in your focus groups and your, your general research outside of that, how difficult was it to, to change something then? It, it certainly was a lot slower because your ability to to you know, pull your ads or change your ads you know, is a 24-hour turnaround compared to what you have now. I think one thing that Queensland Labor had to its advantage back in those early 2000s was obviously Peter Beattie, who's just you know, a phenomenal politician, and his ability just to front the media and change the dynamic of a campaign in one day was there's probably been no one better than that yep. in, in across Australia uh, in, in recent history. But certainly it was a lot more cumbersome and a lot more effort would have to go into coordinating campaigns across the state yep. if you did want to change direction. Yep. Um, but having a leader who could be at the forefront of that makes that job a lot easier um, than, than relying on just the backroom operations to be able yep. to do that. You mentioned before some of the campaigns you've been involved in and obviously from a state Labor viewpoint, 2009 and 2015 were campaigns that Labor loves to uh, look back fondly on. 2012 was always going to be one that you were going to do a tough in. It was a period of change there. Mm. We started to see during those three campaigns, but going from 09 onwards, that social media was starting to play a role in digital media, websites, news websites, etc., as well as the development of Facebook, um, etc., Twitter coming into 2012. What were those changes you noted back then? Because I still remember, and we've discussed this before, when I was editor of the Career Mail, and you rang me in 2012 as the state campaign director to let me know that you were taking an ad on Facebook for a particular seat because you could find a strong way to target that seat. But you wanted me to know, just as a heads up, that this, you know, you weren't turning it back on the Courier Mail as such. It was a bit of communication. But how much did that change over that period? Yeah. It, it obviously wasn't very successful for me in, in 2012, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, I can remember back to so the, the first campaign I ran as, as director was 2009, which was Anna Bly's. Um, she'd taken over from Peter during that term. So it was her first election as the incumbent. Uh, and, and was the first female to win an election as Premier uh, across the country. Um, and uh, I, I remember the, the sort of advertising budget that we had um, the, across the, the TV, radio, print and digital. Um, the digital component was 10% right. of that yep. overall budget. Yep. Um, so just tiny. But then... Uh, by the time of the 2015 election come around, so what's that, six years on from 2009 and only second election later, um, the, the digital component of the budget was up to 40%. Yeah, right. Um, so that's just that. So yep. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what it is now, but if it had gone from 10 to 40% yeah. by 2015, um, we'd be well above 50% now yep. um, given the, the prevalence of the digital. But also just that the immediacy of being able to change what you're saying or target what you're saying in that digital space. And the other thing I think with it is that increasingly, like for instance, back in 2009, you wanted to have the first spot on the six o'clock TV news. Yep. 
And I, I just don't know anyone who sits down and watches the 6 o'clock TV news these days. Like, I'm a news junkie. Yeah. But I don't watch the 6 o'clock news because you're often with your kids or you're yeah. at work or you're doing something like that. I'll often catch up with it on, you know, I'll find the clips on Twitter and find out what's going yeah. on, particularly during the election. Um, but your average, you know, mum or dad who you're targeting in election campaign aren't going to be doing that. Um, but they might put the kids to bed, clean up, and then go watch a bit of catch-up TV. Yeah. And that's where you want your ad spot on. So I think that's how things have changed, is that your ability to reach people, there's so many more different ways. Yeah. You, you still need your TV, you still need your print, you, know, yep. you still need your outdoor, um, but the, increasingly it's the digital focus that's that's coming in. And, and I saw the rise of that in my time, and it's only gone to an extraordinary level over the last couple of election cycles. So do you talk there about, say, broadcast video on demand, you're on your seven plus or your nine now, there's a show that someone's catching up on and there's a place to target? Yep, absolutely, yeah. So that's the, yeah, the, the, the captive audience, I suppose, that is these days. Uh, and that's where increasingly the advertising budgets of, of you know, I would be assuming the major parties is going. Um, but also the ability of local campaigns to do to do those things these days where they wouldn't have, you know, you, your average local campaign back in the 2000s, early 2000s, they wouldn't have run their own TV or radio. Yep. They always would have been coordinated through party office. But all of these campaigns now can do it. And you look at the the, the battle for Kuyong down in Melbourne and I was, I was down there about a month ago and even then... I had a dinner and some people who lived in the area were telling me how extraordinary amount of money being spent in those sorts of places. Right. Um, so that, that that battle for Kuyong alone, you know, would be the equivalent of probably what would have been spent on the South Australian state election mm. in one seat mm. is being spent there. So it just shows you, you know, how you know, once upon a time those local campaigns, all they could basically do was direct mail, maybe a billboard or two. Yeah. That was yeah. it. Yeah. Now with digital they've got a lot more ways to spend local campaign money. So let's look at the environment in which this election is currently being fought in. And we mean the environment in which people consume news, information, entertainment. It's so different back to the 20 years earlier we've discussed. There's all sorts of change, social media trends. TikTok has emerged, it seems, from nowhere. Streaming services are part of everyday life. We've got young people who are enrolling in strong numbers we're told for this election but they're people who have probably never been in the habit of watching tv news or reading print newspapers this is a completely changed landscape for those younger voters how do you go about connecting with them all of those things you mentioned you need to be advertising on in that space um I'm not a TikToker myself, but some of our candidates are um, and are, from what I can understand, quite good at it. Uh, I know the, the party has an active account on TikTok as well. Um, there's obviously the advertising opportunities on that at the same time that I know um, the party's taken up. Um, and I, I think the like inside the Labor Party, we look at that, that we've noticed the, then I think it's got a bit of coverage as well, the rise of young people who've got on the roll. Um, yep. It was quite extraordinary in the last yep. couple of days. Um, before the uh, enrolments closed, um, we see that as a good opportunity for us. So um, we think we're particularly strong amongst that demographic. Obviously, there's a bit of competition between us and the Greens on there. Yeah. So um, we're not taking that for granted and ensuring that we've got 
um, some good content there. And I think there's a balance between um, doing something that's going to get noticed, yep. but then you've also got to have the substance behind it as well. And I think we've had some good policy announcements, particularly, I think, around um, housing, trying to get some young people into the housing market that I think can resonate at the same time. So I think you've just got to balance up that that sort of, you know, I suppose, that social media generation of getting noticed and doing things that people will get attention. But you've also got to remember that they're voters at the end of the day that will make considered choices on topics mm. and you've got to make sure you've got the, the policy propositions that can be communicating to them at the same time. So does this changed environment give you the chance to really zero in on audiences in ways you never have before? For instance, we know that those who are using TikTok probably aren't watching TV news, but they're both important demographics in terms of getting overall votes. So do you have that opportunity now to really go after audiences in ways you haven't before? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think the, the amount of content that you need to create these days across a campaign is phenomenal. Uh, and the digital teams that, you know, that have risen up, that are responsible for a lot of these things and how they... What's crucial is how that fits in with your more traditional advertising, you know, TV, radio. You know, you've got to really have the both of them working together yep. at the same time, but there will be unique content for those um, different... Um, different mediums at the same time so it's it's a real complex challenge to ensure you've got all of those different arms working together and that there's broadly a themed or, co or considered labor message across those platforms but you've also got to make it creatively interesting enough that it's going to get people's attention at the same time yep. so yeah it's 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 a challenge that i'm glad i'm not responsible for <laughs> anymore um given how difficult it is but it's absolutely vital you get it right because you know those you, you can't take any voters for granted these days considering mm. uh you know how challenging it is for the major parties to get their primary votes up uh that you you really need to be ensuring that yeah, you've got you've got really strong messaging to younger people and the different demographics throughout the electorate. I think it's interesting the last um, little while that the uh, Morrison seems to be really targeting the older generation of voters, um, which they wouldn't have probably had to do previously. Right. Um, so I think it just shows you how how challenging this election is just to try and build your vote coalition. So with all of these platforms now at your disposal, how hard is it to understand how you're tracking as a party? Because we saw at the last election, there seemed to be widespread confidence in the Canberra Press Gallery that this was going to be a Labor win. And some of the reporters predicted a pretty comfortable Labor win. And hours later on election day, those predictions were off the mark. They were uh, seen to be not really across what the electorate was thinking. What about now? Can you get a good handle on how you're tracking with confidence or is it too difficult to predict in this changed environment? Mm. It, it is, and I, I think it goes to the point I was making earlier about sort of statewide, nationwide polls. Uh, don't give you an accurate reflection of, of what's going on. And it was the same at the last election. I, I think it's going to be especially the case this time uh, where you may have... You know, neighbouring seats that are different, getting different yeah. swings. Certainly different states will be doing different things yep. um, compared to what they used to be. I, I can't recall a federal election where state premiers have been as influential as they have been at this one in my lifetime. Yep. Um, so the, the 
Mark McGowan at the national at the ALP launch on Sunday, I thought was influential in terms of you know his message, and I, I think that will resonate with Western Australians and yep. be particularly strong there. So I, I think you've got a lot of differing factors um, that are at play, and therefore I think you know the parties will be really focused on ensuring that they're getting the best possible data out of individual seats, yep. not relying on on statewide figures. They'll be drilling down into those seats and uh, working out which are the you know the ones that are in play to deliver them the, the 76, 77 they want to yep. form government. So May 21 is the election date. We know that. But pre-polling begins on Monday, May 9. So there's already people who will be out there going to booths and casting their vote, yet some people will do that almost two weeks later. So what's the challenge for a party to work out how it times its messages across those six weeks to try to get as many votes as it can, knowing that people will be voting in different weeks when there might be different issues at the forefront? Yeah, it's and... and that would have been part of the influence of Elbow doing his campaign launch last Sunday, knowing that he wanted to get in before people started. Postal votes are out this week. Yeah, yeah. Um, so people would have started to postal vote. It's interesting, the, the, the pre-poll have been growing at the last few elections, and I think it's the convenience factor. People know that they're there. Sometimes they're in prominent spots. People will just be driving past and think I can stop. The interesting thing around the last couple of elections where COVID's been a factor is that postal votes had actually dropped, uh, had picked up a bit as well. Okay. Um, so people not wanting to venture out, yep. um, which you can completely understand in the current environment. So I haven't seen the latest on postal votes if they're up again at this election, but it wouldn't surprise me if they're up compared to last time yep. um, federally. But you, you basically now uh, a lot of the campaign focus is, goes into ensuring you've got your your bigger policies out before pre-poll starts, yep. um, that you've got your ability to communicate that to the electorate um, before pre-poll starts. Yep. So obviously that was a factor in the launch coming forward and having some of the substantial policy there. And it used to be that the last week of the campaign there wouldn't be any policy announcements and you'd basically just be blitzing the country and yep. getting out and about. I think it's likely now that that'll, that'll take up most of the last two weeks okay. where you'll basically have um, most of the policies announced and then you'll be more focused on communicating that to voters and ensuring that those people who are going to vote that day um, do have uh, what your idea of what this election is about in the back of their mind when they're going in to vote um, before election day. Right, so there's been that change then in the sense. And, and so what's been the markers behind that change? Well, it's just the reality of, of by the time of election day, you, you've got over 30% of the people who voted. Yeah. And that's you just can't afford to not put everything you can into convincing those people to vote the right way. Yep. Um, so signs up at the pre-poll, well-staffed pre-poll booths, um, li- uh, Lily electorate, um, they've got three pre-polls. A lot of them do. So that's a big effort to ensure you've got all those staffed. Yep. Um, you've got your signs up at them and it, it's a, some of them will be open later than others as well. Um, so that's a big focus and quite often you'll have the candidates spending the majority of their time at those pre-poll locations as well because they know there's voters coming in to vote um, so you're better off being there and greeting them on their way in. Yeah. Um, what about the role of negative um, advertising in politics? And I guess this is not just from an election viewpoint but for anyone in any 
uh, walk of uh, communications that looks at that impact of, of negative um, advertising. How has that changed over the years and where is it at now, do you think? Yeah, it, it's still influential and I, I think that there's, there's a balance in all this because obviously um, there's a lot of cynicism around politics in general and I think that that's something that you've always got to be on guard against and ensuring that you're not adding to that or not making things worse. Um, so I think there's a balance in, in how you achieve that. But you also know, I, I think particularly for Labor federally, where we're trying to go from opposition to government, um, we're obviously highlighting the record of the incumbent sure. um, yeah. is, is what we need to do and ensuring that people are walking into that ballot box thinking, I don't want to give this guy another three years is a significant part of what we need to do. Uh, I think that where you can do it with a bit of colour or a bit of humour, obviously, uh, I think alleviates some of that, you know, really sort of dive to the bottom. Yep. Um, but uh, it's not always possible. Um, and sometimes... Uh, your campaign, if you don't get it right, can suffer as a result. And we've seen examples of that in the past. So what about when it comes to trying to get some sort of discussion on policy? So on, I guess, the more serious matters, uh, less spicy matters when it comes to engaging with audiences. But of course, policy debate is a worthwhile part of election campaigns. How tough is it? Because we've seen that People are engaging with uh, media, so news and information more than ever. Um, the challenge, of course, for news editors, directors, is that they probably never had more traffic in some ways, but they've also probably never had the same revenue challenges, but that's an issue that media confronts. But what about for you? Is it hard to get debates going with people who are used to consuming so much information with so many options there is that a challenge or is it achievable in this market it's definitely harder i don't know if this is necessarily the electorate's fault and i'm not going to blame the media but i just observed the in the six years i've been in the senate and i spend a fair bit of my time in regional queensland the the number of journos working in regional towns is a lot less than what it was when I started. Yep. So a lot of those those regional TV networks, they don't have the same coverage as what they had previously. Yep. Obviously, the old um, local newspapers up there, are, you know, they still have journos doing online editions, but it's it's rare they'll actually turn up at a press conference. If you give them some content, they'll run it. Yep. Uh, and then the media, the 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 radio landscape, the ABC still relatively strong, and they've put some mm. new investment in some of those places, which mm. is encouraging. But the, the commercial radio networks through those times, it, it's often the one person who's the announcer, the producer. Mm. Yeah, it's hard for them to yeah. coordinate and have an engaged discussion yeah. on a policy subject when they're answering the phone while they're playing a song yeah. and coordinating everything else. It's the realities of modern media. It is, yeah. So it is, it is frustrating because I think that we are missing the opportunity to have some, some broad you know, some longer in-depth discussions or better policy analysis, but also just a, a focus on, a critical focus on what a local government are doing or what a sitting MP is doing in those areas. I don't think that's getting enough attention as compared to what it would have been 10, 15 years ago at the same time. So I think overall it's, it's, not, it's, it's not a great impact on 
society um, because there isn't the, the, the level of scrutiny that there should be and that people like myself should be under when we're in those places. Well, what are you doing here? Why are you here? What are you going to do about it? Um, you know, I think that's, um, that, that's something that I think deserves government attention in that I think we sh- there should be a government response to ensure that there's more competition uh, in the media market and more voices in the media market. And I feel that particularly acute in, in regional Queensland where you've got substantial population bases but not the media coverage to, to cover it. We can see that people do tend then to go to social media to um, uh, voice their frustration or their opinion or whatever. You're someone who uses social media. Uh, it seems to me, particularly on Twitter, that some of it is just pure vitriol. Mm. doesn't matter what side of politics you're on. How do you find engaging in social media, being a senator, um, being prominent in the Labor Party? Um, how do you find the, I guess, the general engagement on social media in politics? Yeah, look, it, it's something I, I struggle with and I, I wouldn't say I love it and I think it's something that you obviously have to do because there's, you know, one, there's a lack of other options. Um, two, it's a way of telling people what you're up to. Um, but I'm not going to kid myself and think that there's thousands of Queenslanders out there that haven't decided how they're voting in the election that are going to look up, oh, what's that senator been up to? And I think that's the thing for me is that... You know, how can we how can we reach more people or talk to more people or engage with more people um, is what I'd want to be focused on. Um, I don't feel as though I get that from you know putting things on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. Um, so I you know I sort of you know do a bit on Twitter, but nothing too serious to be honest. It's rare I'll do a proper a proper more likely to tweet about the Broncos uh, <laughs> or the footy on that. The Facebook I sort of do mainly for work. Um, and and do things on that, but you you don't get the the to and fro from it yeah. that that you know I feel as though that you would if you were sort of on radio and taking calls from listeners or something sure. like that. That yeah. you know twenty years ago would have been pretty standard. So I want to go back to 2012 here in the Queensland state election, and we'll talk about this 2012 election and the 2015 one, um, which was such contrasting results for Labor. So in 2012, obviously it was always going to be really tough for you running a campaign uh, for a government that had been in for a long time uh, and there was clearly a mood for change. I know that my paper at the time uh, endorsed the opposition um, and was pretty clear about that. So you came into a campaign knowing it was going to be really difficult how do you approach those campaigns when you know that the going is going to be so tough? Yeah, look, I, I think it would be fair to conclude that the way we approached it was the wrong way. So <laughs> for, anyone, for anyone listening who's about to run a, <laughs> about to run a really tough campaign, um, I wouldn't focus on what we did. But that was a tough it, campaign yeah, for you. It, it didn't really it matter was. what you did. No, it was. And I, I think yeah, it, it was a combination of... Um, being in government for a long time, yeah. so basically we'd, we'd been in government since '98. Um, you know, really, we'd been in power since '89. When you take out the the two years of Borbidge and Sheldon, yeah, um, through that period, so it was it was a time for change. Yeah, um, was the overriding mood of the electorate. Um, I think that you know we obviously 
you know, took it on and ran a really, really hard campaign um, to do what we could to try and turn that around. Um, uh, you know, that basically blew up in our face. Um, the thing I would say personally about it is I learnt more from that loss in 2012 than I probably did from any of my wins. Yep. And if I hadn't gone through that and what I learnt... I don't think I would have done as good a job as what I did in 2015. Yeah. Um, so I think, and I think the other part with it was is that it it would have been easy for the party to disregard me after that 2012 result and say, oh well, you know that was a failure. This guy's got to go. Uh, but they actually backed me in, gave me some support mm. to stay and run that next campaign. And you know. I'd like to think I did a good job. I think the results you know, prove that we did a good job. But I learn a lot from that, going through that experience of being on the wrong end of a result, what I'd do differently the next time around. And I think that's one good thing that the Labor Party, uh, while we've been more successful at the state level in Queensland, is because we have had that continuity um, and experience that the campaign directors have had. Whereas if you look at our opponents in Queensland... They seem to just, you know, each election they've got a different person running the campaign um, and they can't all be that bad and they can't all be that good. Um, mm. But I think it just shows that, you know, you do... I think there's a shelf life as campaign director and I did three elections, which is mm. more than most, mm. but you do learn a lot from each one and do a mm. better job the next time. In 2015, I just felt as though I was at the top of my game. I could see what was coming. I could plan for it. Um, I had a good team around me, so I mm. wasn't rushed or busy. I had time to think. Um, but that was the experience that I picked up from from what we did wrong in 2012. It's fair to say very few people thought Labor would win that election. When did you think you were a realistic chance of, of winning an election in which the bookmakers had the government at the time very short odds? Mm. Anastasia um, was was you know, always pretty confident, particularly the last 12 months, so that... That 2014 period leading up to 2015, we won a couple of good by had a couple of good by election results in there, uh, and those by election results were interesting because uh, we got good swings to us. But what we also knew is that the preference flow was a lot better for us in those by elections than what it was at the, the state election. And quite often, when uh, you know the newspapers, the Korean Mail, the Oz. Um, back in those days, they'd publish statewide results. Yep. They'd always base it off the preference flow from the last election, which is a fair enough. You know, I'm, I'm not being critical of that. It's, you've got to base it off something. But we always knew that the mood of the electorate was to punish Newman. Mm. So we always knew that we were doing probably two points better than what those statewide results were showing. Because right. if you base it off the preference flows from the by-elections, yep. um, we knew we were ahead of that game. So... We, we knew we were performing better than what the, the statewide polls say. And then in late 2014, we started polling some seats and we, we started polling ones that were sort of in the, you know, the 5 to 10% range, the ones, you know, we were hoping yep. to get back. Um, and you know, they all just kept coming back that we're ahead, we're ahead. Then we went a bit further up the pendulum into the 10 to 15% range and... Yep. Oh, they kept coming back saying we're ahead ahead. So it just it was one of those rare occurrences where you know, we needed some big swings, but we were just getting the big enough swings in those margins to get across the line. Yeah. So we we were feeling we knew we were on track for a good result. It obviously was a bit preposterous to say we could win, mm. but Stacia had this this inner confidence. 
Um, and we just kept finding seats further and further up the pendulum mm. that we were a chance in. Um, and then, you know, like you, you sort of, as campaign director, you, you know, you're, you're always pretty pessimistic yeah. um, at elections yeah. and, and that carries on now um, for election campaigns. But we, we knew we were a better chance than what the pundits were, yeah. were putting us on. And that was also working in our favour is that people thought they could punish Newman and send him a message um, and didn't necessarily think the government would change. Sure. But I w- the one thing I would point out, which, which doesn't really get touched on these days, but the last news poll before election day, Anastasia actually overtook Newman as preferred premier. Right. Uh, I think it was the Thursday, Friday or something right. before the election. So it does show you that, that you know, the mood was changing towards the end and Stacia's standing in the electorate was quite strong. I remember texting a few Labor MPs and a few government MPs the day before the election. I was still in contact with some to wish them best of luck the next day and one of the uh, ministers texted me back and said, um, uh, have you got any tips for the races tomorrow? I need some. We're done. Um, Did you know when you went to bed that Friday night that you could win that election because he seemed to think from the government side that they they were cooked? I thought we were a chance. I definitely thought Newman was going to lose his seat. I thought that was a, a certainty and that Kate would be returned there. Uh, I, I thought it would be close. I thought it would be, in my heart, I thought unlikely that we'd form government right. afterwards, um, to be to be absolutely frank. Right. Okay, so a bit over two weeks to go till election day. Back with your old campaign director's hat on. What are the last two weeks like these days for a campaign director, how much sleep are you getting? <laughs> um, how much can you plan your day ahead? I mean, how mad is that last fortnight? No, it's it's mad. I think um, one of the things that I, I learn is just having that good team around you and ensuring that you've got a bit of time. Because ultimately, your campaign directors, you want them to be a bit creative. You want them to be thinking about things in a different way. So the more time you've got to have the you know to think and have a bit of time for yourself or consider things um, the better off you are so I, I really hope Paul Erickson our national secretary is getting a bit of time <laughs> to do that but it, it is like I remember the, the the campaign launch was on Sunday and I just used to get so nervous for campaign launches because you'd always just be thinking about something could go wrong and I remember uh, when Anna Bly, my first campaign launch in 2009 we had a photographer there to take some pictures and he literally kicked the plug out of her auto cue, um, and so Anna had to go for about a minute ad libbing before someone realised and literally did the <laughs> and plug it back in <laughs> to keep it going. So I've always just had this fear of campaign launches ever since, thinking something's going to go wrong. Um, did so you know what had happened at that time? Not not originally, but then we sort of worked it out. And I was I was sitting in the audience, so you couldn't do anything, but you could tell on her face that the auto cue had stopped, and we didn't know why. Um, to her credit, she was able to keep going and didn't really miss a beat. But then eventually, yeah, the sort of great, you know, <laughs> Chevy Chase moment of, of uh, the Christmas tree, the Christmas lights going up. Um, so, yeah, so I, 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 there's, look, there's so many things that can potentially go wrong. Yeah, like a candidate X can go rogue for no reason because yep. they're having a bad day that you can't do anything about. Um, so the things in your control... Uh, you're there. I always try to have a calm demeanour, um, so that um, you know that would exude across yep. other people in campaign. That we've got a plan, we're sticking to it, we know it's working. 
Uh, and to be honest, I, I feel as though, as I mentioned before, I'm a bit of a natural pessimist when it comes to elections. I've been out and about <laughs> a fair bit uh, the first couple of weeks of the campaign. I feel as though we're on track for a good result and I feel as though we're well positioned to actually get stronger the closer to the election as well. So I think um, I think Elbow's performing well, I think the team's performing well uh, and I'm feeling quite optimistic that we're, we're on track for a good result in Queensland after a, a bad result last time. So how much do you then as campaign director let the research um, dictate things according to, say, maybe your gut feel. You've run a bunch of campaigns. The research is saying this. You might think differently. What's the role these days with so much information around? Yeah. What's the role of, you know, acting on what you think is best? Yeah. Well, I, I still think that, that campaigns are still more art than science. So you do obviously get a lot of data these days around research, advertising, what people are looking at, clicking, you know, et cetera, that type of thing. But I, I still think it's more an art around what you persuade people. So I would certainly be more inclined to go with my gut than I would what, you know, science or what the what the, the research is telling you. And I think that probably goes with a little bit of experience at the same time. I think the thing with Elbow is he's been around a long time um, and I think he feels as though he's got a pretty good grip on what people are feeling out there and I think he's someone who'd be much more reliant on you know, his gut and what he wants to go with uh, and I think the campaign would as a result, which I, I actually feel much more confident in, um, particularly given the, the, the disparate nature of the electorate these days across the country. Um, I think that's what you know, we'll be relying on for the last couple of weeks. So there's two and a half weeks to go. I'm sure they will go by in the blink of an eye, at least you've got an NRL magic round in Brisbane next week to offer up uh, some distraction for you in that time. We really appreciate you coming in to do this podcast during such a busy time. I thank Jordan McDonald for his great research for this. We've really appreciated those insights. Senator Anthony Chisholm, thank you for coming in and all the best to you for May 21. Thanks, Michael.